Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible and would like to follow along with us this morning, we'll be in Mark 10. Uh, we're going to start there. We'll, we'll look also at some passages from the previous sections that we've been in already. Um, we've been in this series called Follow, where we've been trying to listen to the call that Jesus gives us, just like he did uh, in the first century, to, to come after him, to follow him, to be a, a student of him. Uh, the term often used in the New Testament is a disciple which literally would be a learner or a follower. And so Jesus is inviting us to that as well. We said in Mark there's this urgency, um, there's this immediacy there. It's the shortest of the Gospels. Um, it's the most action-oriented of the Gospels. And it's, it's telling us that we need to come now. We need to follow Him. It is important. This week we're looking at the concept that we've seen in the last few chapters. It's kind of coming to a climax a little bit here in the section we're about to read. But we're looking at this concept of following selflessly, that we would actually find our true selves by letting go of that and finding uh, who we really are in Jesus. You see, we all come in this morning with a a certain set of skills, right, and and gifts and strengths. And the temptation is that we would think that that is enough. We would think that that's enough uh, to secure us in life. That's enough to take care of us. And Jesus continues to invite us to to lay those things down and come to Him and see Him as our only hope. And so that's what we see again with uh, this little passage we're going to read about the children. If if you don't have a Bible and you want to follow, we're on page 846. We're going to look at Mark 10, verses just 13 through 16 here in the beginning. This is kind of a wraparound. We saw a few weeks ago Him interact with the children and, and use the children... And our attitude towards children as a metaphor for our attitude towards God. And he's now coming back to that again. And so what I wanted to do then is review the last few sections where that all kind of comes together. So we'll start, uh, we'll start at the end and then kind of move backwards a little bit in the sermon. But we'll start here at 10, verses 13 through 16. It says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. And so in uh, Middle Eastern cultures, many of you have been there, they would uh, want to touch holy things, right? Touch a, a relic or be in the presence of a holy man. And so they were seeing Jesus this way, and people were then bringing Jesus so that, uh, bringing children to Jesus so that he could bless their children and, and uh, touch their children and, and uh, that they could somehow be helped, right, with their kids. Uh, but the disciples, what did they do? They rebuked them, it says in verse 13. But in verse 14, but when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Let me pray and ask God to to teach us from this section this morning. God, we thank you for Jesus. And I pray that you'd help us to hear his call to follow him. Um, Lord, that we would understand what it means that you actually care about little ones and that you care about children and those that we might think are insignificant. God, help us also to understand that the kingdom is is for such as these, those that understand their own insignificance before you. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would meet us this morning as we look at your word, that you would teach us and help us to understand uh, what you're doing in the world and what you want to do through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, as I said, this is kind of a wraparound with uh, a previous section we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and I want to read that again and then read um, a devotional that I read this about 15 years ago. It's uh, A Godward Life by John Piper, and uh, really good. haven't really read it since then. It just kind of went on the shelf as you know one of the good devotional or morning read kind of books that I'd had. Um, but this, this uh, little discussion that he talks about in this book really stuck out when we came back to this text. I kept remembering it and remembering a little conversation that he describes. And he's talking about uh, this section in Mark 9 that he had just been reading with his children. So let's go back to Mark 9, the other place where Jesus talks about children. Mark 9.36. In Mark 9.36 it says, And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So again, we've got this wraparound where Jesus uh, keeps coming back to children and saying, this helps us have a window into God's priorities, how God cares for those that are insignificant. And, and Piper writes this in, in uh, this devotional. Oh no, my page got lost. Hold on one moment. It's page 140 if you're wondering. If you have your copy there in the voice. He says, he's explaining it to his kids around the breakfast table. He says, it must mean that spending time with children was a sort of low-priority, insignificant, demeaning work. At least that's the way Jesus' disciples were looking at it, right? In their minds, this was not a priority. So if you spent time receiving and caring for children, you were one of the least people. He says, his 11-year-old Benjamin was listening to all this. And you have to understand that Benjamin was a regular worker in the nursery. Benjamin heard us explain that receiving a child in Jesus' name is like being leased because it was work nobody wanted to do. So he said, but that's not the way it is at church. It's, it's not low work. At that moment, as I opened my mouth to speak, to respond, I found myself saying a most wonderful truth. Benjamin, I think that's because God is creating a Christ-like atmosphere at our church. At least that's the way it ought to be. Jesus took the child-belittling culture of his day that defined greatness to exclude receiving children, and he turned it upside down. He said, Receiving children in my name may be the world's least, but the world's least is my great. So wherever the Spirit of Christ pervades, the people who receive children will no longer be the least, they will be great. So what Piper's saying here, and I, I think this is kind of happening at our own church, is what happens is we actually begin to have a culture that reflects the priorities of our King, of our Savior, right? And it's a beautiful thing. And so as we look at these texts this morning, what I want to say is I, I think that's actually starting to happen. I think we're beginning to understand what Jesus' priorities are. I think we, we reflect that in the way that we do love children, in the way that we do honor them, in the way that we do welcome people, even not just children, but people that society might consider the least of these. But as we begin to be welcoming, we're reflecting what God is like. We're beginning to understand His character. But I also believe that it's our bent to continue to, to lean back to ourself and to have to be re-reminded of this day after day. And so when we gather to worship and we gather to celebrate God and His goodness and what He's done for us, and when we learn from His Word, what we're saying is, God, re redirect our hearts. Remind us that, that You loved me, even though I was the least of these. And as I'm re-reminded of that, then that's going to transform me and help me to care for those that I wouldn't ordinary care, ordinarily care for. And so I think that same process is happening 
at our own church, and I'm excited about that. And so as, as we look at this, I want to think of ways that, that we can follow Jesus in selfless ways, where we don't just value our own strength and our own uh, abilities and, and how big we are and how great we are, but we recognize that, that we're the least of these also. And so the first step of that is recognizing that that's how you even enter the kingdom. My first point is that we enter selflessly, right? We enter into relationship with God. We enter into membership at the church. We've said that often. The first step of membership is to recognize that that we can't uh, be members, we can't be a part of this based on how great we are, but we're, we're members of Christ's church based on recognizing our need. Right? So we enter selflessly, not saying, hey, look at me, look how great I am, you've got to let me in. But we come saying, I, I don't deserve this, but you're a gracious God. Thank you that you gave yourself for me. Let's, let's read verses 13 through 16 again in 10. Chapter 10, 13 through 16. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. So the disciples don't have the same priorities as Jesus. We've said it encourages us when we look at the Gospels. We see the disciples kind of messing up all the time. Say, okay, I can be a follower of Christ too, right? I can follow Christ too because I often have mixed up priorities. And I often don't see things the way that Jesus sees them. And so they're not getting it. uh, But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, okay? He was like, no guys, you you don't understand. He said to them, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom is for people like this. The kingdom's not just for important people. The kingdom's for little people, too. It says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. He's saying you can't even enter the kingdom unless you recognize how small and unable you are to, to do anything, to win any place at the table. You enter the kingdom by recognizing what Jesus has done for you. So I know many of you come from different backgrounds, and we've all been taught in different ways, maybe sometimes overtly, maybe sometimes very subtly, that that somehow we can do enough to win God's approval. That somehow if if we are uh, doing the right things and attending the right classes and saying the right things, that somehow that's going to influence God to be pleased with us. And, And He says, no, I'm pleased with my Son, Jesus, and all those found in Him. And you have to lay down yourself and everything you've done and all your rights and all your skills and and all the things that that justify you and say how great you are. You have to lay those things down and enter selflessly. You enter the kingdom with your only hope being Jesus. And that's how you approach. And so we have to understand that too. And Jesus uses the analogy of a child. He says "This, this is a way for you to understand that. We're like children. When we come to God, we're like children. And I did this a couple of weeks ago. We have a picture of a crying baby here. And I apologize for those of you with crying babies at home because I know it's not as cute for you, right? But <laughs> you're sleep deprived. You may be a little, a, little, uh, a little sore right now over this. But for the rest of us, it's very cute and it's endearing. And it reminds us that, that we're helpless before God. We're, we're helpless. We're just absolutely dependent. It's really amazing. I, I don't. I'm not a biologist by any means, or a zoologist, but I, but I think human babies are more dependent than most animals out there, from from what I understand, as a non-scientist, right? But it's amazing how God uses this to teach us, right? We're we're, we're absolutely dependent as as babies, and Jesus says that that's how you enter the kingdom. You come to the kingdom just stripped away, right? You can't do anything. You can't walk. You can't talk. You, you, you are completely unable to do anything. 
And he says, that's how you enter the kingdom. You come recognizing your, your weakness, recognizing your need. And he says, this is the illustration. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Jesus didn't have PowerPoint. He didn't use flannel graph. He just grabbed a kid. And he said, this is what it's like, right? It's like a baby. But that's what it means to enter into the kingdom. And we have to be reminded of that. Like I said, that's something we continue to have to, to beat into our brains, as, as Martin Luther actually said. The gospel is something you have to beat into your brains continually, Luther said. We have to remind ourselves. I can't do it on my own. I need Jesus and His work to, to take my place. I need Him to bring me in to the kingdom. And so my question, an application question for us this morning is, is are you willing to come to that point? Are you willing to look weak? Are you willing to look dumb? Are you willing to look like a baby? Are you willing to look small and say, I surrender, right? I can't do it. God, I I need you to do it. I need you to open the door. We're not going to beat the door down, but we're going to come in recognizing our own weakness, right? Like it talks about in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are spiritually poor, blessed are those who are meek. That's how we enter into the kingdom. We have to hunger and thirst for it. So that's my question. Are, Are you at that point? Are you willing to surrender and give up your rights to your kingdom and recognize that that God is king, that Jesus is king, that he's the one that's been crowned? The the baptism coming up uh, pretty soon in in March 11th, that's that's a great opportunity to do that. That, That's part of what we do in baptism. It It is both a washing image of saying I'm unclean and I need Jesus to wash me, so I'm displaying that by being baptized. But it's also a death image. It's saying, I can't enter apart from giving up rights to myself. It's an image of going down to death and coming up to new life. And so you're symbolizing what's already happened in your heart. You're saying, I believe that I can't do this without God opening the door for me, bringing me in. If you've not come to that place, I encourage you to consider that. Talk to me about it. The gospel is simply this, that we can't do enough to get ourselves in the door, to fix what's been wrong, to make right all that we've done. But Jesus took care of it for us. Our sins have been placed on Him so that our sins died on the cross with Him. And we're given freely His righteousness. And all we have to do is ask. That's all we have to do. This will result in a different outlook then towards little ones in our life. If you come to that point of entering the kingdom selflessly and recognizing I can't do it on my own, I'm, I'm a little one, I don't have anything to offer, then that changes you so that you actually love other people, that we actually uh, reflect that in the way that we care for others. A few examples of this would be uh, your own children. How do you, what's your attitude towards your own children? If you understand the gospel, then that sets you free to both discipline and delight in your children. Right? We often swing from one or the other, right? We just, uh, maybe depending on whatever abuses or whatever oversights there were in our childhood, we may say, well, I'm going to be their best friend, right? We're just going to have fun together. Or we swing to the other side and say, I don't want them to get in the trouble I got into, so I'm just going to put them in the lockdown, right? It's going to be strict. There's going to be discipline. And the, the Bible really says we should do both. We should just delight and relish our children and enjoy them and celebrate life with them. We should delight in our children. But we should also discipline them. And that comes from recognizing that God loves us as a little one. He loves us as a little one and we don't always know what we're doing, so He guides us. He instructs us. He disciplines us. He gives us boundaries. He says no to us sometimes. A lot of times. 
But he also delights in us. He loves us. He, he celebrates us. Zephaniah 3.17 says he sings over us. And so when we recognize God's posture towards us, that frees us up to be parents that actually love our kids and to do a good job of it. Now this is lifelong learning. I'm not saying I, I have this figured out. I'm saying again, this is that part of that that we have to be re-reminded of. As we're re-reminded that Jesus loves us, then that sets us free to love little ones in our life. And of course, we have to start with our own kids. But another thing that I've been really encouraged about at our church is caring for orphans. That's something that, that seems to be multiplying. And, and that's a mark of Christianity historically. For the last 2,000 years, Christians are the ones that, that build orphanages and hospitals. That's something we do. We care for those that can't care for themselves. And we've talked over the last few weeks about locally, there's some ways to do that, right? With Hope Pregnancy Center. Caring for women that are in a difficult position that are considering abortion and encouraging them to keep that child or to put that child up for adoption. And so we encourage you to to grab the information about Hope Pregnancy Center in the hallway and consider partnering with that ministry. Or Family Link Adoption Services and Foster Care Services in the area. A lot of families have worked with them. When, When we adopt a child, we're doing what God did for us. We were all orphans and we needed God to adopt us by His grace and bring us into His family. There's also international organizations like Compassion International and the International Justice Mission. Those are a a couple of groups that that our family supports and encourage you to consider those as ways to love the least of these and to love those that can't take care of themselves as a reflection of what God has done for you. If you understand that that was your posture before God, then that's going to begin to affect the way you treat others. And then the last thing, we can't forget this, is volunteering in our own nursery and children's ministry, right? So I'll I'll, uh, push you on this a little bit because if you're at the 1030 service, that means you're not uh, caring for kids right now in there. Some of you are on the monthly rotation, but but some have never even considered it because it's so scary and horrifying. And I just want to encourage you that that it's a beautiful thing. As you understand that Jesus says, let the little children come to me and don't hinder them, that that's a beautiful expression of it, that our church culture would continue to be one where we value children and we love children and we welcome them. In Jesus' name. And of course, as I said, this, this comes out in the way that we relate to everyone else too. Not just children, but anyone that we consider the least of these. Or anyone that we may not value in the moment. As we recognize that God values us because of His grace, then we're going to graciously begin to value other people. And so I want to look back about what this means as we enter into the kingdom selflessly, recognizing that it's Jesus' love for us and enables us to love others. This then translates in the way that we do marriage. We already looked at this little marriage section last week, but I now want to move backwards in the text and look at it again because I think it is such a need in our culture because this is an area where we struggle, right? And I don't want to beat up those who have failed in the area of marriage because I know that's painful and I know that there are scars and I know that often that's an open wound, but it is something that we need God's help with, right? It's something where we need His instruction, need to understand uh, what He wants us to do. I want to call this this section struggling selflessly. As we look at what he says about marriage, he's calling us to struggle selflessly. Again, to make it not about us, to make it about others. And I know that for some of you, if you're here with your spouse, you probably can't raise your hand and say that marriage is a struggle. But I think when we're honest, right, my wife went, uh, when we're honest, my wife and I will vicariously for you raise our hands and say, yes, marriage can be a struggle, right? Marriage can be difficult. It's, it's hard work. One of my favorite preachers is Matt Chandler in Dallas. And uh, one of his sermons on uh, biblical love, he said, 
the commitment of marital love is saying, you're the person I want to fight with for the rest of my life. I, just, I love that image, right? I just love that idea because we're going to be fighting with somebody, right? I mean, if you're going to live with other humans in the world anywhere, there will be sparks. There, there will be conflict. There's, it's going to be a struggle, right? Because we are selfish, not selfless. And so as we learn to follow Christ, seeing His selflessness for us, seeing how He gave Himself for us, sets us free to be selfless and to struggle in community with others. So I know a lot of you are not married, you're single, and I just want to encourage you that whether you're single or married, community and life with other people is is not about us. It's about serving others. The the parallel passage of this is in Matthew, and there Jesus says that that it's a grace to be single, that, that it's a gift. That, that affords you, and Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians too, that affords you the ability to have more time and more resources to spend on others, and not just this one person that you're married to. But either way, whether you're married or sig- single, community is difficult, and, and loving other people is a struggle, and so he calls us to struggle selflessly. Let's look back at the section again in Mark 10, uh, verse 1. It says he left there. I'll give you a chance to turn. Okay. Mark 10, 1. He left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up. Now remember, the Pharisees were the religious leaders, right? They were the Bible beaters of the day. They came up, and in order to test him, they asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And now Jesus is going to explain this wasn't the original design. They, they were actually in some ways more quick to divorce in their culture than we are now, which I know you, you probably are used to hearing the stats of how bad it is and, you know, and how half of us have been divorced and how that's, it's so common in our culture. But I think in some ways it was actually more common in the Jewish culture because they had all kinds of loopholes and permissions to divorce. And Jesus was challenging this. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, He wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Saying when a man and woman marry, the design is for it to be permanent. We talked about this last week. We said that it's a, it's a fracturing. So those of you that have been divorced, you can testify to this. It is painful. You have scars. It hurts. It tears you apart to be divorced. And he's saying the, the design from creation was that we would be one forever. But this legislation was written. Moses was giving them guidance because of their sinfulness. Because they had a hard heart. Because they couldn't carry it out, then they had to have extra guidelines um, to protect women and to make things better. It says in verse 10, In the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. They were very confused, right? It says in Matthew, they were like, Well, why would anybody get married then? I mean, it's crazy. You should go read the parallel passage in Matthew. They're just in shock. Then it's impossible, right? This is a no-win situation. Verse 11, And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And the text is pretty clear. It, it's not okay. It's a problem. And I'm really conscious of creating a culture here we would, where we would really value marriage and say that God's design is that it be permanent. 
and that we would equip people to make that work. But that we would also have a gracious culture and recognize that, yeah, half of us have been divorced. And so that we would meet you where you are and say, God is forgiving, and He's gracious, and He wants to help you make right choices from now on. As Jesus would say, go and sin no more. So when we're saying divorce is a sin or divorce is not God's plan, that's not condemning. Again, remember, this is the place where we say you, you can't be a member unless you recognize you're a sinner. Okay, So when we say something's a sin, we're not uh, trying to kind of push you to the side and say, you're bad and we're good, right? We're, we're all sinners. So you need to recognize it in context, but, but also we want to not shy away from saying, yeah, that's not God's plan. That's not what He wants. Because God cares more about your joy than you do. Even when in the midst of it, it feels so impossible. You feel like, this is killing me. Come, come talk to us. We have classes. We have counseling. We, we want to equip you. We want to help you make it work. So, so don't run to the divorce lawyer like, like that's going to fix it. Because the Pharisees are saying, well, Moses gave us some laws. He gave us some regulations about divorce, so surely it's a, it's a good idea, right? Or it's okay. And Jesus is saying, no, those regulations are because of your hard heart. Jesus is saying, yeah, it happens, but it's not the design. It's not the purpose. I have a picture here of um, legislation. It's supposed to be laws. It's got like a judge's gavel there on top of um, some files and some paperwork. And a lot of us, I think, in our culture are pretty cynical about legislation, right? I mean, we don't necessarily think that legislation solves all of our problems. Um, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I tend to think that way. And Jesus is saying this legislation isn't fixing it. It's, it's not the answer. Look, going to law and rights and thinking of ways to justify yourself and trying to figure out the right loopholes so that you can say, I'm good, but they're bad, it was their fault, it wasn't my fault. All of that's not, that's not going to fix the situation. You have to have a heart transformation. He's saying it's hard hearts that are the problem. So in any, in any relationship, we have to look again back at our heart and say we can't even enter the kingdom apart from a heart change, apart from a recognition that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior to fix my situation. And then we can't do kingdom things. We can't reflect the values of our King apart from that heart change, apart from an ongoing reminder that I can't do this on my own self-effort, but I need Jesus to work for me. Galatians talks about this uh, law and self-effort versus spirit and Jesus effort a dichotomy. And he says, make sure you're not relying on yourself. Make sure you're not relying on law. Make sure you're not always running back to trying to justify yourself and saying, well, this book says I'm okay, or this writing says I'm alright, and this says, no, don't give up your rights. Give up self-justification and entrust yourself to Jesus. And as you recognize that He loves you not because you've done everything right, that sets you free to love other people. Whether it be a spouse that drives you crazy, or it be anyone in your life. As I said, there's going to be a conflict with any human beings that, that we run around with. Any human beings that we live in community with. Any human beings that we associate with. There will be conflict. And we can only struggle well as we give up ourself. See, what so often happens in marriage is we kind of, kind of try to bolster our position, right? Say, well, I'm right, and I did this, and you did that, and we, we try to self-justify. We have to give up ourself. We have to stop self-justifying and entrust ourselves to Jesus as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. There's a, a great example of this also. Galatians, of course, is 
is a great book to read to just kind of understand that difference between trusting in what Jesus has done for you versus trusting in law and what you can do for yourself. But James also talks about this problem with our hearts in James chapter 4. In James 4 it says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, he says, do you you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So you have to make a choice. Are you going to love God and trust Him to satisfy you? Or are you going to love the world and its system that says, look out for number one and justify yourself and do what you need to do to protect yourself? Or are you going to give up self and entrust yourself to Jesus? Find your true self in, in Him. And learn to then struggle in what is difficult, in the difficulty of community, in the difficulty of marriage. Now, there are some uh, loopholes, right? There's loopholes mentioned in Matthew, uh, like, well, okay, it's okay to get divorced in this circumstance. There's loopholes mentioned in 1 Corinthians 7. Um, But if you're considering the loopholes, I just want to challenge you. Like one of them in, in Matthew is adultery, right? If your spouse has cheated on you, well then... Of course, under the Old Testament, that would be death penalty, so maybe then that's an excused divorce. But, but in Hosea, I would encourage you, if you're considering that, to, to read Hosea. In Hosea, the, the picture is that God is a God that loves us even though we're an adulterous bride. He's forgiven us, and He continues to come back after us. And so, I mean, even if you're considering the loopholes, I would say, you know what, God has loved us even while we were still sinners. But, you know, there, there was nothing that, nothing that makes us lovable, right? There's no, he's not under contract. He doesn't have to stay with us. But He gave up His own life to redeem us and to buy us back. So I encourage you not even to worry about the loopholes. And if you want to talk to me afterward, I'd be glad to, to counsel with you or, or talk to you about those things. A lot of times people want to lay that all down and there's been tons of ink spilled on all the times it's okay and it's not okay and all these and I, I just don't think that's Jesus' emphasis here. Saying the problem is our hearts. We need to check our hearts. Are you willing to give up your own rights so that you can love someone else? Hosea is a great place to read. I'd also encourage you to look to First Peter three, where it talks about uh, loving someone who's disobedient. What does that look like? It's a struggle. It's difficult. But God calls us to hang in there. And I just want to encourage you, again, we're, we're going to equip you. We're going to help you. We have a counselor that counsels people on Mondays. You can talk to me and the other pastors, the elders. We have a marriage ministry here, the Browns that lead. You know, they're leading two marriage classes right now and meet with people. So, so we want to support you. If you need help, ask for help. Like I said, it's, a, it's hard for everyone. Everyone struggles in this area. But don't give up. Continue to trust that Jesus can do great things. And that that leads to the last section I want us to look at. He he calls us to be great selflessly. He he actually wants us to be great. So all this talk of giving up yourself might make you think he just wants us to grovel and kind of walk around sad that we're such losers, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but you might think that sometimes. And so I want to continue to move backwards again in the text and understand what it means to be great selflessly. If you flip back to 9.33... This is the section we looked at earlier. 9.33 says, They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? 
But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. So they're arguing about who's the greatest, and now he's kind of rebuking them for that. And so again, we might think he doesn't want us to be the greatest. He doesn't want us to be great, right? And, and we shouldn't be so concerned with that. And I would, I would encourage you, I would agree with that in the sense he doesn't want us to be obsessed with being great. But he actually says the problem is not that we want to be great. The problem is that we don't understand how to be great. Like, we're, we're designed for greatness. We're designed for glory. If you, if you look back at Genesis 1 and 2, we're, we're designed to be kings and queens of creation. God designed us to have dominion, is the word used there. That means that we're made to be kings and queens. We are made to have a greatness. We are made to reflect His glory. Like the moon reflects the sun, right? It's not our glory. It's a reflected glory but we're created in His image. The, the wording of Scripture is that we are image bearers. We're to reflect God. We're to show how great God is. So He wants us to be great. It's just we can't do that unless we've humbled ourselves and entered the kingdom by giving up rights to ourselves and recognizing that, that all our gifts, all our skills, all of those things are just reflections of Him. And we need Him to bring us through the door. We need Him to change our heart so that we can consider others and care for others the way that he does. He says they were arguing with one another about who was the greatest in 935 says he sat down and called the twelve and he said to them if anyone would be first he must be last of all and servant of all. It says true greatness comes through serving other people. A lot of times we call this servant leadership and if you've worked in the business world or in the military you've seen these practices actually work. They, they work in real life, right? They're practical. As you serve others that, that helps you to be a better leader. He says in verse 36, And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So part of how we receive God, part of how we trust Him is we reflect that in how we receive other people. That we consider others more important than ourselves. It says in Philippians that we should have the same mindset as Jesus who considered us more important than Himself, who died for us. So the gospel, the reality of who Jesus is and what He did for us transforms the way we see other people. And that enables us to be great. That enables us to be a servant. And when you're a servant, then you will be great. When you're able to place yourself last and not fight and scrap for position, right, and always be trying to nudge someone else out of the way so you can get first in line, when you're able to give that up and serve others and go to the end of the line for the sake of others, Jesus says, you're going to be great. He's actually going to do great things through you. He's going to use the skills and the gifts that you've had since you were a child. Not only that, He's going to use stuff that you didn't even know was there. Right? He's going to work supernaturally through you as you yield yourself to Him, as you give up rights to your own life and as you selflessly serve others. Skip back a little bit more to 8.34. 8.34 says, And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? 
Now this is not possible apart from a God that gives Himself for us. So a lot of times people make a whole theology out of personal suffering and giving yourself up. That doesn't work apart from a God who gave Himself up for us. So you have to start there. That is the main idea of the New Testament. That's the main idea of the book of Mark. So don't isolate just this verse and say, beating myself and hurting myself and giving up everything is the way. No, it only works as we understand that He has given us everything through Christ. As we understand, He's saved me. He's set me free. I don't need this relationship to make me whole. I don't need this money to make me whole. I don't need this job to make me whole. Jesus is the only thing that can make me whole. Then He's going to turn you loose to be selfless so that you can be great by being a servant of others. You can begin to give up your rights and serve others. A picture that Jesus gives elsewhere in the Gospels is uh, the kernel of wheat. Right? He talks about a seed grows into great things by actually dying and being buried. So this is an illustration of this picking up your cross, being willing to face death, being willing to give up rights to yourself. It's not about my career. It's not about my relationships. It's not about my money. Uh, I'm not going to fight and, and make that the most important thing. I'm going I'm to give up rights to Jesus. I'm going to say, all right, do, do what you need to do. As we entrust ourselves to Him, we, again, this is the baptism imagery. As you go down, you come back up to new life. He says, as the kernel of wheat goes into the ground, it's buried and then it springs to new life. Something grows that you didn't expect. When you look at a little seed, we, we don't always picture the great plant that it's going to become. But that, that's what He wants to do through our life. I want to challenge you that Jesus wants to do great things through you. And don't underestimate what He wants to do. Recognize again that you can't even be a member of this church unless you understand that you're a sinner and that you don't deserve great things, but God loves you and He's gracious. So that's how membership works. You know how uh, ministry and leadership training works here too? It's the same thing. It's just the same thing. You've got to recognize that you can't do it on your own in order to be a leader here. Jesus says, as you give up rights to yourself, then that enables you to minister, to to serve people, to help people, to be great for His sake. I really want you to pray about this and consider, guys, God, what would would you want me to do? What would you want me to do with the talents I have? We all have natural talents. We all have things we're terrified to do. Uh, God calls us to take what we have and invest it for His kingdom. Matthew 25, it makes it real clear that as we trust Him as a generous master, that sets us more free to invest our talents for Him. That moves us to do great things, to take great risks. I want you to take some time and pray about it this week. God, what would you have me to do? Oftentimes we have people that don't want to sign up for ministry opportunities and volunteer things that we have at the church or out in the community because they think, I don't have what it takes, right? And I would say, yes, that's exactly what you need on your resume. I mean, that, that's what Matthew 5 is all about. That's what the Beatitudes are all about. Recognize you don't have what it takes. And as you recognize that, then He's going to use you to be salt and light in the world. That's where Jesus ends up with all that. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And it has to start with you recognizing, I don't, I don't have what it takes. You have to hunger and thirst for an alien righteousness that only Jesus can provide. Pray. Say, God, will you show me this week what you want me to do? Show me what risks you want me to take. Show me what people you want me to pray for. Show me what people you want me to help. Show me what organizations you want me to volunteer for or to be involved in. Pray that He would lead you this week. Let me pray for us. God, we ask that You would lead us, that You would enable us to love those 
that others don't, Lord. The least of these in our culture. Open our eyes to see who they are. God, help us to love those that are close to us, whether we're married or single, those we live in community with, Lord, that you enable us to, to understand your desires for marriage, how you created it as a permanent bond to reflect your glory. And God, that you would teach us that you do want us to be great. You want us to have dominion to rule and reign, but that we would do it by giving up rights to you as the true sovereign, as the great king. God, help us, we pray. We know that you do this because you're gracious and you're good and you showed us through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.